Let's take a moment to pray together for a moment. God, we pause and ask now for your help. We pray that the words that come from my mouth would hug tightly to the words that have come from yours. They would be faithful and true as was prayed. Pray also now for us that you would help us to receive with meekness this word which is able to save our souls. We pray that as we stand here, perhaps like this scribe in the story, ready to evaluate Jesus, we would come under evaluation where we find where we stand with him. So come open our eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe this passage this day. In Jesus' name, amen. At the end of the year, I had heard a question on the radio, and so I turned to my wife, Shainu, and I asked her uh, this question. The question was, in three words, how would you describe 2016, right? A, a huge year, massive year with lots of things that happened. How would you describe all of that in three years? And we had a good conversation around it, and those kinds of questions are fun because they force you to take something that's huge and enormous and massive and long, like a whole year, and boil it down to the essentials. I mean, to take a year with 365 days and hundreds of thousands of hours and tens of thousands of moments and experiences, and to summarize all of that down into three words. It's the same kind of thing that organizations and companies do whenever they come up with their mission statement, right? A business, a complex organization with varied practices and diversified interests will take all that it is and all that it does and try to boil down into a few words, into one sentence, what it's about. For example, take Google's mission statement. Its stated mission is, Google's mission is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. Right? That's well said. In one sentence, in a few words, you take this enormous, massive thing and all that it is and all that it aims to do and boil it down to one sentence and just a few words. Well, what if you tried to do that with the Bible? Meaning... If you could take all the commandments and all the ethics and all the rules and all the regulations, all the thou shalt nots and all the thou shalt, and boil it all down into one sentence and say, here it is, here in just a few words is what God requires of all human beings, what would that sentence be? What would those words sound like? Well, for us... In our passage today, that's precisely what someone challenges Jesus to do. Someone asked Jesus, summarize all of this for us. And Jesus rises up to the challenge. In fact, in this passage, you'll need to leave your Bible open there in Mark 12. This is the passage where what we've just heard is Jesus gives us in one sentence all that God requires. In essence, Jesus is saying, look, if you took this whole book, and all its rules for life, all that God requires, all the ethics and all the commandments, and you wanted to know in one sentence, here is what God expects, it would be right here. In fact, I want to suggest that you could summarize Jesus' words into one sentence, into, by my count, five words. In five words, in one sentence, you could hear, this is what God expects. Now, I'll tell you those five words and that one sentence, after we look at Mark 12. So, if you've got a Bible, open it to Mark 12, verses 28 to 34. We've been working our way through the gospel according to Mark. We took a break over the holidays, and now we're ready to jump back in. And, and if you remember, 
Where we were last in the gospel according to Mark was that Jesus was essentially in the third round of a fight with the religious leaders. If you remember in chapter 11, Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem as this very humble king. He was riding into his coronation, seated on the back of a donkey. And from the moment he's arrived in Jerusalem, he has been fighting, battling the religious leaders. And it seems in this sequence of narratives, as soon as he knocks one contender out, another one jumps into the ring. Do you remember it started with the trio of chief priests and elders and scribes? And they came to Jesus with sort of a procedural question. Jesus had sort of wrecked shop in the temple, and they came to him and they said, by what authority do you do the things that you're doing, Jesus? And then after Jesus had dealt with them, after the trio came a duo. It was the Pharisees and the Herodians. And they didn't come with a procedural question. They came with a political question. They said, tell us, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And just as soon as Jesus had wiped the ring with them, in jumps in now one party, the Sadducees. And they didn't come with political questions or procedural questions. They had a theological question. If you remember, the last section we looked at was, Jesus, you believe in the resurrection, in life after death. Tell us, how exactly does that work? And now at last, in our passage today, we get one more. And after this, I want you to hear, there won't be any more, because this passage ends in verse 34 with these words. This section ends by saying, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. They were done. This guy will be the last who climbs into the ring to contend with Jesus. Jesus has knocked out the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Jesus has knocked out the Pharisees and the Rhodians. He has knocked out the Sadducees. And now we get one more contender. And Mark says, into the ring climbed a scribe. In Matthew's account of this same story, he calls him a lawyer. Scribes or lawyers were those who had studied the Jewish law, who had studied and knew all the commandments like the back of their hand. And now this man climbs into the ring, and he's got a question. It's not procedural. It's not political. It's not theological. He, the lawyer, has a legal question. He's got a question about God's commandments, about morality and ethics and how we get to God. And here it is. Here's his question. Verse 28. Mark 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Which commandment is the most important of all? So the way that it works is, as Jesus is schooling the Sadducees on the resurrection, this scribe is apparently in the crowd, and apparently he's actually impressed with what Jesus says. He thinks that Jesus has answered him well. And in fact, when you read Matthew's account of this same story, you get the impression that he also came in with the approach of trying to trap Jesus. He too wanted to bring Jesus down. And yet, as Mark says, did you notice, as he came to Jesus, as he heard Jesus, as he saw what Jesus had to say for himself, something changed in him. Would you take notice of that? Because maybe that could happen to you as well, even today. Meaning, maybe you're here and you might even say, I'm not the Jesus type. Maybe you don't have a great opinion about organized religion and church and religion and, and Jesus. And I would want you to hear from this passage, that's okay. 
You don't have to agree with everything we're saying. You don't have to believe everything we believe to be here because I can assure you this man in this story would have been the last man you'd ever expect to be favorable towards Jesus. In fact, he was part of the scribes. And I want you to know before this story, the scribes were in a fight with Jesus. After this story, the scribes will be in a fight with Jesus. In fact, in just a few verses, Jesus will have some very hard words to say about the scribes. If, if you're the type that would say, listen, nobody in my family, nobody in my line of work, nobody in my profession, nobody in the neighborhood that I grew up in, nobody who sees the world the way that I see it is a follower of Jesus, I want you to know this man would have said exactly the same thing. None of his peers, none of his colleagues, none of his coworkers, none of the people he ran with, none of the crowds he associated with were followers of Jesus. In fact, he came into this conversation to prove Jesus wrong. But as he came to him, as he heard what Jesus had to say, and as he saw for himself, something in him moved. Something in him changed. That could happen. It could happen for you. So, seeing that Jesus had answered the Sadducees well, this man steps in and he's got a question of his own. You heard the question. Which commandment is the most important of all? Now, why is he asking that question? He's asking because the rabbis of that day, the religious leaders, had counted up the commandments and there was no less than 613 of them. If you think that you have a hard time keeping 10 commandments, imagine them trying to keep 613 commandments. Of course, Nobody could keep 613 commandments. And so inevitably, one of the conversations that started to emerge was, okay, nobody can keep 613. Which ones do we have to keep? And so among the rabbis, there was sort of this ranking. And they started to put the commandments in an order and said some commandments they would label as heavy. Those are the ones everybody has to keep. And some would be light. And there'd be this argument about which are the heavy commands and which are the light ones because everybody knows nobody can keep 613 commandments. So here's the premise to his question. What's underneath his question is, listen, Jesus, if we're going to be good with God, we got to keep the commandments. Nobody can keep 613. So which one is the most important? If we're going to be good with God, we got to keep his commandments. There's 613 of them. We can't keep them all. Which one is the most important? Come on, Jesus, help us out here. Make this doable for us. So tell us, out of all the commandments, which one is the most important? And Jesus is going to answer him. He says in verse 29, Jesus answered him, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. I want to say that I think you could summarize what Jesus is saying. Here's what's required by God. Here's what it all boils down to. And I want to say in one sentence, in five words, you could summarize what Jesus is saying is required from God. If you boil it all down, here it is. Love God and love people. 
you were to boil down all the commandments, all the law, all the prophets, and all the teaching, here's what it all comes down to. In essence, the heart of the law, here's where it all hangs. Love God and love people. That's the essence. That's the heart of the whole thing. Now, I want us to look at this individually for a moment and then step back and look at it together. The first and greatest commandment Jesus said is this, love God. So we want to ask, who are we to love and how are we to love? The first one is to love God. We're to love God. And to bring that across, Jesus reaches back into the Old Testament and pulls out a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6. This passage would have been one that the scribe knew well. In fact, every devout Jew would have known this commandment. Jesus pulled back because every devout Jew said these words twice a day. Every morning he would wake up and every night he would go to sleep. And before they did, they would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Who are you to love? You are to love the Lord your God. Now here's what's striking about this. Where Jesus pulls this commandment from, Deuteronomy 6. If you go back and read that section, Moses gives this command to God's people right before they're about to enter into Canaan, what was called the, the land that God promised, the promised land. And they were about to be surrounded by neighbors, by people all around them that didn't believe as they believed. Uh, one scholar named D.A. Carson, he points out rightly, when God's people, whether you're talking about Israel back then, or the church in the New Testament got this command, it immediately made them different than everyone around them because none of their neighbors believed this way. If you were in the New Testament, if you were a Christian in the church then, and you looked out your window, all your neighbors had many gods, not one. So, for example, your Greek neighbor, if she was going to get married, she might offer a sacrifice to Hera, the goddess of marriage. Your other friend who was Greek, if he was going to travel by ship, he might pay homage to Poseidon, the god of the sea. Your Roman neighbor, if he was going to go into battle, he might make an, a sacrifice or, or pray to Mars, the god of war. You see, there was countless gods, and so you had to constantly appease all of them because they all had something to do with your life. You could never miss one. There was hundreds of gods, thousands of gods, and you could never miss one. In fact, that's why in the passage that Pastor Binu preached last week, when Paul goes to the city of Athens, he sees a statue, and the statue says, to the unknown God. Why? Because just in case there's a God out there that we forgot, we don't want to make him angry. And so we built a statue just to that one as well so that we cover all our bases and none of the gods will be angry at us. Do you see that? That's the context. That's the world. And so what you never did was you never gave all your allegiance to one God. It was constantly fractured into thousands of them. All your worship was splintered among the many gods. Your prayers were offered to many of them. You never gave all your affection, all your devotion, all your heart to one because you had many to appease. And into that world, into that context comes these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So that when Israel heard that back then, or Christians hear that now, we say we don't have many deities. 
We don't have many gods. Our worship, our allegiance, our prayers are not splintered and fractured. Our sacrifices are not offered across to the many gods. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You see, what Deuteronomy was shouting, what Jesus, in quoting Deuteronomy, was affirming, is that there is but one God. And listen to this. Not just one God for Israel, but that there is only one God, period, and there is no other. So the first and greatest commandment, then, is not to some kind of vague spirituality. Everybody should believe in a divine power. Everyone should have some higher authority. No, it's very specific. You are to love God, this God, and only this God, for there is no other God to love. Because here, O Seven Mile Road, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is the only one. There is no competitor. There is no one else in the heavens. There is no other narrative in the world. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is the God we are to love. And how are we to love him? With all our heart, and with all our soul, and with all our mind, and with all our strength. See, these four words pile up. And listen, you could parse through each one, and you could talk through what does it mean to love God with your heart, and what does it mean to love God with your mind, and with your soul, and with your strength. And that'd be worthwhile doing. But the cumulative effect of this is not to cut you up into four pieces, but rather to say, listen, with your entire being, with everything that you are, with every fiber of who you are, with your thoughts and your emotions and your will, with your affections, with your hungers and your appetites, your desires and your ambitions, with every fiber of who you are, with everything that you have, you are to love the Lord your God. Hear, O Seven Mile Road, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with everything you are, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength, with every fiber of your being, love God. And then Jesus couples that command with a second one. The man asks for one, Jesus gives him two, and he says, this one's for free. The second commandment is this, and you shall, verse 31, love your neighbor as yourself. And coupled together, there is no commandment greater than these. He pulled back to Deuteronomy 6 to pull you the first great commandment, which is love God. And then he pulls another passage that the scribe would have known and every devout Jew would have known, Leviticus 19, to give you the second, which is love people. Who are we to love and how are we to love? He says, you are to love your neighbor. That's people, the people around you, whoever God puts in your path, right? The first command is this vertical one, love the Lord your God. How? With everything that you are. And the second command is this horizontal one, and love people, love your neighbor. And how? He says, as you love yourself. Love God with all that you are, and love those around you, whoever the Lord puts in your path, as you love yourself. Now, what does that mean? I want you to know he doesn't leave it as some kind of vague, hazy, fuzzy sort of thing. You know, we all just got to sort of figure out our way to what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. No, if you go back to the passage Jesus pulled this command from, Leviticus 19, what you'll see is before he says love your neighbor is this list of concrete expressions of what it means to love your neighbor. 
He didn't leave you in the dark sort of figuring out, well, that might mean good feelings in your heart. Hopefully you have good feelings towards lots of people. No, he gave you very concrete words on what it looks like to love your neighbor. In fact, I won't read you all of it now, but in Leviticus 19, before this command to love your neighbor comes, he says things like, listen, when you harvest in your field, don't harvest all the way to the edges. And when you gather, don't grab up everything. Leave something behind for the poor. Why? Because that's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. When you're in court, don't you dare speak dishonestly. Don't tell lies. Why? Because that's what it means to love your neighbor. Don't steal stuff and defraud so that other people have to pay because of your crime. Why? Because that's what it means to love your neighbor. When you hire someone, make sure you pay them well and pay them on time and don't cheat them. Why? Because that's what it means to love your neighbor. Don't harbor hatred for your brother. Don't slander with your mouth. Don't harbor a grudge or seek revenge. Why? Why all these concrete expressions? Because this is what it means to love your neighbor. When you see the poor or the blind, care for them. Why? Because this is what it means. Love your neighbor as yourself with these tangible, concrete expressions of what that means. Love God and love people. Now, I want us to step back for a second and see what Jesus is saying. Take them together. And listen, here's what people in our day would say. Here's what our culture, what our world, what our city, what your neighbors would say. Here's what some of you would say. See, love. That's what it's about. At the end of the day, it all boils down to when you took this massive book and all its requirements, essentially what it all boiled down to was love. We should be loving people. And, and our world would say, there is nothing special about that. Everybody believes that. Religious people, irreligious people, church people, not church people. Every worldview, every religion would say the same thing. You certainly don't need Jesus to tell you that. Who would disagree that what the world needs more is love? So don't you see? There's nothing special about what Jesus is saying. It's a good thing he said it, but he says it like everybody else says it, and you certainly don't need Jesus, and certainly don't need Christianity to add that piece. Everybody would say what the world needs is to be loving. But I want you to notice something and not miss this. When Jesus was done speaking, verse 34 tells us that when he was done no one dared to ask him any more questions. Meaning they didn't hear Jesus' word and go, Jesus, you're just saying the same thing everybody says. Jesus, we could have found that some other place. They heard what Jesus said and they were stunned. They were shell-shocked. They were struck so much so that nobody could form another word and nobody dared. Not that they didn't have questions. Nobody dared to ask him any more questions. They weren't going to go up against Jesus anymore. Because whatever he said sounded to them, shocked them, shell-shocked them so much that it didn't sound commonplace. So what is it that they heard that shell-shocked them that we hear and go, well, it's the same thing everybody says? Here's what I think it is. Jesus' approach to God's laws, to the commandments, to ethics, to morality is different than anything else. I heard this preacher named Tim Keller, 
And as I heard the sermon, what he had to say was so good and brilliant, I literally wanted to rip up all my notes and just bring in an audio recording and press play so that you could just listen to someone better at this. But he, here's what I heard and, and learned from him. He, he, he made this great point. He said, you see, what Jesus says about the law here, it, it goes against what both religious people would say and irreligious people would say. It goes against what religious people would say and irreligious people would say. Uh, religious people would come to the law and they'd say this. They'd say, listen, tell me what rules or laws I got to keep so that I can stay good with God. That's how religious people approach religion. I know if you grew up in church, this is so wired into you. I grew up around church and religion. This is so wired into my DNA. This is how I constantly think. If I don't fight this, this is my natural bent, which is tell me what I got to do to stay right with God. Otherwise, he'll be angry at me. So you know why I pray? Because otherwise, God will be ticked. I read the Bible because otherwise, God will be mad at me. I do the things I do because otherwise, I'll be on God's bad side, and that's the worst side to be. So a religious person comes like this scribe and says, just make it doable. Tell me. I can't keep 613. Give me a law, and I'll keep it. Tell me what I got to do to stay on God's good side. That's the religious person. The irreligious person would come and say, listen, you don't need these primitive rules to tell you what we all know. All we need to be is loving. You don't need these rules. You don't need this first century book. You don't need a, a Jewish religious system to know that people should be good. All we need is love. The religious person would say, tell me what the rules are and I'll keep them so I don't get God mad. The irreligious person says, we don't need the rules. All we need is love. And Jesus would come and say, you are both wrong. You're both wrong. Why? The religious person comes and says, listen, I can't keep 613. Just give me one, and I'll work hard at keeping it so I can be good with God. Now, say Jesus gave you a command. Say he said, you know what the greatest is? Honor your father and mother. You know what I'd do? I'd write that on my notebook, and I'd go for the rest of my life. I am never saying a bad thing about dad and mom again so that I can check this off and go, God, you see that? You gave me the greatest command, and I kept it. If, if the greatest command was don't commit adultery, we'd say, okay, all we have to do is make sure we don't sleep with someone who's not our spouse. We're good. We've kept the rule. Here we are, God. Whatever command Jesus would have given, the religious person would say, this is what it takes to not tick you off. Okay, I will spend the rest of my life trying to keep it. But here's the question. Why do you keep it? The reason you keep it is underneath it's why? Fear. If I don't, God will get me. And so fear is why you keep it. And when you keep the commands out of fear, it inevitably leads to one of two places, which is either despair or pride. When I keep the commands out of fear, then either I'm going to eventually realize I can't keep these commands. No matter how hard I try, I keep messing them up. And so I'll live this life of guilt and despair, and I'm never going to get right with God because I can't keep these commands. Or I go, you know what? I'm not perfect, but at least I'm better than that person. I'm doing a good job. God should be impressed and pride. Fear-based obeying of the commands will only result in either pride or despair. But here's the bigger problem. Whatever it is, you're not obeying because of love. And so the irony is, you're breaking the first commandment as you keep the others. In all my keeping of the other commandments, 
I'm breaking the first one as I keep them. I'm not doing this because I love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my strength, with all my mind, and with all my soul. I'm doing it so he won't be mad at me. My keeping of every one of his commands is by breaking the first one that I keep the second. Jesus would come and say, you're wrong. The essence of the law is love. Love for God, which drives you to love your neighbor. That's the law. The law isn't just a bunch of stuff that you should stay away from so God won't get mad at you. That wasn't the law. And he would come and say, religious person, your vision of the law is so messed up and you don't even know it. And the reason you don't know it is because you keep the law. And so you've so deceived yourself, you don't realize. Love. Love is what was supposed to drive the law. Meaning, the reason the, the commandment, do not commit adultery, comes is not so that the religious person can say, check. The law wasn't just don't commit adultery. It's rather what? It's a positive vision that says, here's the kind of spouse you should be. You should be a loving spouse who is always faithful. Because why? Law, love was on which all the law and the prophets hung. Love is what all the commandments are about. He says the essence, when you boil it all down, it's about love. And so you don't commit adultery because that's what it means to love your neighbor, to be a faithful spouse. You don't lie, not just so that the religious person can say check, but the vision behind that is why? Because you're for the truth. You should be an honest person. This is the vision. Not just avoid a lie, but be a person of the truth. You don't murder not just so that you don't take a life. What's underneath that is, I, I want you to be the kind of people that promote life. Listen, and when you get that, you begin to understand the law is much deeper and weightier. It's not just that I can check a box if I didn't kill someone, but the law is calling me to be the kind of person that is constantly promoting life, bringing life to the people all around me. When do you ever get to check that box? You're always indebted to keep going. Religious person, you didn't see what the law was about. It's love for God, which drives love for other. But Jesus would come to the irreligious person and say, you're wrong too. Because the irreligious person would say, you go get them, Jesus. Do you see that? It's just about love. When will these people learn? All these people sitting in the church, when will they learn? You don't need these rules. What you need is love. And Jesus would come and say, listen, to the religious person, I would say, Living loving is why you should live lawfully. Living lovingly is why you should live lawfully. Keep the law because it's love. But to the irreligious person, he would say, living lawfully is what it means to live lovingly. Living lovingly is why we should keep the law. But living lawfully is what it means to keep the law. Right? What it means to love is to keep the law. He didn't give you this nebulous, vague, hazy, I hope you have a good feeling in your heart about people. He gave you concrete examples of what it means to be a loving person. You want to be a loving person? Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Why? Because that's what it means to be a loving person. The law is what it means to be loving. The religious person's wrong. The irreligious person is wrong. And listen, when he's done with the scribe, the scribe said, give me one commandment. Make this doable. And Jesus dropped on him, love God and love people. 
and it didn't make it more doable. But he couldn't argue with Jesus. Of course this is right. Of course this is the way you should see the commandments. And so he says, teacher, you are right. And Jesus then says to him, verse 34, and Jesus saw that he answered wisely and said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Isn't that something? This man came to evaluate Jesus. Jesus turned to evaluate him. He came to see where Jesus stood. Jesus was now giving him insight into where he stands. And he says this, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Here's what I think that means. That means that this man, during the course of this conversation, moved. He's not in the kingdom of God yet. He didn't say that, but he's not far He had come to trap Jesus, but somewhere in the course of this conversation, as he heard Jesus and saw Jesus for himself, something in his heart moved so that by the end of this conversation, he left different than he came in. He came in to trap Jesus. He left with Jesus saying, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But friends, hear this. He's not far, but he's also not in. Because you don't get into the kingdom of God by agreeing with Jesus. And you don't get into the kingdom of God by keeping these commands because none of us have kept these commands. You see, if Jesus had come to open the doors of the kingdom of God for those who had loved God with all their heart and loved their neighbor as themselves, I want you to hear the kingdom of God would be empty because none of us have done it. None of us have loved the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. And none of us have loved our neighbor as ourselves. So then what hope do those of us who have broken these commands have? We should do what the scribe did. We should come to Jesus. We should hear him and see what he did for us and be moved. Have the needle of our heart changed. We don't come into the kingdom of God by agreeing with Jesus. We come into the the kingdom of God by wholly throwing ourselves onto Jesus, by trusting in Jesus. You know why? Jesus came to do the commandments we didn't do, to keep what you and I have never kept. He did it for us in our place. There's only been one who has ever loved the Lord as God with all his heart, with all his mind, with all his soul, with all his strength, with every fiber of his being. And there's only one who has loved his neighbor as himself. This is Jesus. And one preacher rightly said, when Jesus was on the cross, he was simultaneously pulling off both commands at the same time. If you've read through that account when Jesus dies, he's on the cross, and as he's on the cross, God the Father turns from Jesus, abandons him. And from the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now take that moment in for a second. Here is the one human being who has obeyed. And we think if you obey, you get to God. Here's the one human being who obeyed, and God distanced himself from him. And he abandoned him, forsook him. In that moment, Jesus was forsaken by God. Jesus was in hell in that moment without God. And yet from the depths of hell, Jesus cries out what? My God, my God. Here is the one person who will gain nothing for his obedience. He has nothing to get. He's abandoned and forsaken and still there. He loves the Lord his God with all his heart, 
with all his mind, with all his soul, with all his strength. My God, my God. And in that moment, at the same moment, is loving his neighbor, you and me, as himself. You're his neighbor. And he loved you unto death, even as he loved himself. This is what Christians call the good news, the gospel. And here's what the gospel does. The gospel tells us Jesus kept the commandments you and I didn't died in our place for our sins. And when we receive that, I want you to know what it does. It drives us back to the very commandments we couldn't keep in the first place. The gospel suddenly motivates, fuels, and empowers me to go back to loving God and loving people. Except not now with a, with a desire to get his love. I already have it. It it gives you a new motive as you seek to love God. You're not loving God anymore to get his love. You already have it. Jesus loved you when you could not love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And when you get he loved you in that state, it moves you now to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You know, this is the way the law comes. I've always been struck. Don't miss this. In Exodus 20, when the law first comes to God's people, I've always been struck that the Ten Commandments don't start with Commandment 1. Go back and read Exodus 20. It doesn't start with, you shall have no other gods before me. That's not how the commandments start. Exodus 20 verse 1 starts with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who rescued you from the house of Pharaoh. You shall have no other gods before me. What does that mean? It's not obey these things and I'll get you out of Egypt. It's I got you out of Egypt. I rescued you. I delivered you. I saved you. I began a love relationship with you. You're mine. I'm yours. Now have no other God before me. That's the way it is. Gospel first, obedience second. We're loved by God, so we obey God. We're accepted by God. We're pleasing to God, and so it becomes our heart's aim to love him back, to be pleasing to him, to obey him. And when the love of God fills your heart, then it moves you to love others. How? As Jesus loved you. Neighbor love happens when God's love first comes into your heart. Then I can love another. How? has Jesus has loved me. So that means you forgive. Why? Because Jesus forgave you. You pardon that frustrating person. Why? Because you're frustrating and Jesus pardoned you. You move towards that person that's so difficult. Why? Because you were difficult and Jesus moved towards you. You go the extra mile. Why? Because Jesus went the extra mile for you. You're thoughtful and creative in how you love others. Why? Because Jesus was unbelievably thoughtful and creative in ways you couldn't have imagined in aiming to love you. You now love your neighbor, not just as you love yourself, but as Christ has loved you. This is what Jesus teaches. He teaches, what did God require? That we love God and love people. But what did we fail to do? To love God and love people. What did Jesus come and do for us? He loved God and loved people. So now through Jesus, what do we give ourselves to? To love God and to love people. Let's pray together.